time for Upper Michigan's Happy Hour here on ESPN-UP. The sports pen coming at you Monday afternoon. Tanner Hoops with you in studio. Glad to have you along. A lot to get to today. Most of it pertains to football. A big weekend at the college level this weekend. And the NFL had a wild day yesterday. We're going to break that down as week nine will end tonight when the Giants welcome the Cowboys for Monday Night Football. That game on ESPN-TV kicking off at 8.15. Also coming up today, we'll be talking about how one of the most high-profile college football jobs open this weekend. Who do you need to keep an eye on? Who is potentially heading to Tallahassee? And as always, we'll play over-under to finish out the show. All that and more coming up over the course of the next hour. Glad to have you along. It's going to be a fun one. Let's start the way we always do. We start a new week during the NFL season by recapping each game from Sunday and we start out in London yesterday morning the Texans absolutely dominate Jacksonville 26 to 3 Deshaun Watson makes his claim to be in the MVP race 22 of 28 201 yards two touchdowns he was not picked as his team Outduels Gardner Minshew, who had maybe his worst game as a professional quarterback yesterday. 27 of 47, 309 yards, no TDs. He was picked twice and sacked four times. Even the greatest quarterback has a tough game. That's your inspirational quote of the day. Houston wins yesterday over Jacksonville 26-3, that game out in London. The Bills needed to thump the Washington Redskins yesterday. You have a one-win Washington team that brings a rookie quarterback out there. They needed to make a statement, and they did. That defense was superb, and the offense wasn't too bad either. Josh Allen, 14-20 for 161 yards, one TD. He was not picked. That was more than enough to outduel Dwayne Haskins. Again, his first career start, 15-22, 144 yards, no TDs, no picks. He was sacked four times. Buffalo gets the win over Washington 24-9. As the Bills move to 6-2, and two, they hit the halfway point. The Panthers, 30-20 winners over Tennessee. Kyle Allen, he's making the case that he's going to be the full-time starter in Carolina going forward. 17-32, 232 yards, two TDs. He was picked once. Christian McCaffrey, and my best fantasy player, 24 touches for 146 yards and two TDs. Through the air, he wasn't too bad either. Three catches, 20 yards, and one score. Christian McCaffrey and the Panthers run over the Titan defense and win by 10. Kansas City rallies late to beat Minnesota 26-23. Harrison Butker kicked four field goals to lead Kansas City yesterday, including one right before the buzzer. Matt Moore, 25-35, 275 yards and one TD. Eric Bieniemy wasn't holding him back this game. He was saying, Matt Moore, go out and do your best, Pat Mahomes. And he sure did. Kirk Cousins on the other side kind of worked his way into the MVP conversation. I wouldn't say he did. He was on the fringe coming into yesterday's game after a really good month of October. Well, October Cousins is gone. Yesterday, he was 19-38, 220 yards. He did throw for three touchdowns and was not picked. But there were a few crucial mistakes on his part. Dalvin Cook, 21 touches, 71 yards, and no TDs as Kansas City did their darndest to contain him. Elsewhere, the Dolphins are off the schneid. They win their first game yesterday, taking down the Jets 26-18. Did you see that sign that they had out in Miami on the broadcast? Dolphins are tanking. The Jets are just bad. And they were bad yesterday. Sam Darnold, 27-39, 260 yards, one TD, and one pick. Le'Veon Bell, 17 carries for 66 yards and did not score. On the other side, Brian Fitzpatrick led the way for Miami, 24-36, 288 yards, three TDs. He was not picked. Meanwhile, Mike Gesicki, six catches, 95 yards, a big tight end, was Fitzmagic's favorite target yesterday. The Eagles beat the Bears 22-14. to They had to survive. They had to hang on by the skin of their teeth toward the end as Chicago mounted a rally. But Carson Wentz was 26-39 for 239 yards, one TD. Jordan Howard, 19 touches, 82 yards, and one score on the ground. Mitch Trubisky on the other side, 10-21, 125 yards, no TDs, and no picks. Another rough game for Trubisky and the Bears. To their credit, he only passed 21 times, and that's something that needed to change. David Montgomery, 14 touches for 40 yards, including two TDs. That is the formula for Chicago going forward. Run more, pass less. 
The Steelers hang on to beat the Colts 26-24. A rough year continues for Adam Vinatieri. Speculation that he might retire two weeks into the year and yesterday misses a potential game-winning field goal with a minute and 11 seconds to go. The Steelers hang on and win 26-24. Mason Rudolph, 26-35, 191 yards, one TD and one pick. On the other side, Brian Hoyer had to step in and didn't do too bad in place of an injured Jacoby Brissett. 17-26, 100 68 yards, three TDs. He was picked once, but a set four of five for 59 yards before leaving due to an injury. Marlon Mack, meanwhile, on the ground, 21 touches, 89 yards, and did not have a rushing touchdown. Steelers get that win over the Colts via missed field goal. Elsewhere, the Raiders 31-24 winners over the Lions yesterday. Derek Carr with a big day as he gets a touchdown pass late. 20-31, 289 yards, two TDs. He was not picked. Josh Jacobs, another big day. Two rushing touchdowns, 28 carries, 120 yards overall. Meanwhile, Hunter Renfro with six catches to lead the Raider receiving core, 54 yards, including one TD. On the other side for the Lions, Matt Stafford, 26-41, 406 yards, three touchdowns, and one pick. Meanwhile, we got our first real look at Ty Johnson as the Lions' primary running back. Nine touches for 29 yards, left a lot to be desired. Seattle winners over Tampa Bay yesterday, 40-34. to That victory came in overtime. Another MVP performance from Russell Wilson, 29-43, 378 yards, five TDs. He was not picked. Chris Carson, 16 touches for 105 yards. And Tyler Lockett, 13 catches, 152 yards. How about DK Metcalf, though? I did start him in fantasy this week. Might have been my best fantasy move of the year. Six catches, 123 yards, including one TD. Jameis Winston, 29-44, 330. 35 yards, two TDs. He was not picked. One of his better games this season. Ronald Jones, 18 touches, 67 yards, including one TD. And a big day for Mike Evans, 12 catches, one TD, and 180 yards total. But Seattle survives, and they get the win over Tampa Bay in a shootout that needed overtime. How about Brandon Allen starting for the Denver Broncos yesterday as they dropped Cleveland to 2-6 with a 24-19 victory. Allen starting in place of the injured Joe Flacco, 12-20, 190. 93 yards, two TDs. He was not picked. He was in there to be a game manager, and he did that role well. Philip Lindsay, nine touches, 92 yards, including one TD. Corbin Sutton, a big day, five catches, 56 yards, and one score. Baker Mayfield on the other side, 27 of 42, 273 yards, and one TD. Nick Chubb, 20 carries, four, 65 yards, and no TDs. Odell Beckham Jr., five catches, 87 yards, and no scores. Cleveland dropping to two and six as the turmoil in that locker room continues to mount. How about the Packer offense? Where were they yesterday? The Chargers dominate on their home field, 26-11. to They get out to an early lead, and the Packer offense just didn't seem to be there all day. Phillip Rivers, 21-28, 294 yards, no TDs and no picks. Melvin Gordon averaged four yards a carry, 20 carries, 80 yards. He did find the end zone twice, however. And a big day for Hunter Henry, seven catches for 84 yards to lead all receivers in the tight end and receiver group for LA. Aaron Rodgers, meanwhile, 23 of 35, 161 yards, threw for a TD, was not picked. Aaron Jones, eight touches for 30 yards. Meanwhile, the top receiver, Devontae Adams, good to have him back, seven catches for 41 yards. But Green Bay, they look like they could have Super Bowl aspirations at the midway point of the season, and they just weren't there yesterday. And finally, on Sunday Night Football, the Ravens make a statement. They dominate the Patriots 37-20. They knock New England from the ranks of the unbeaten. That means, like we all predicted, the only unbeaten team left in the NFL this season is San Francisco. Lamar Jackson was outstanding last night. 17 to 23, 163 yards, one TD. He was not picked. Jackson then carried the ball 16 times for 61 yards and two rushing TDs. Mark Ingram, 15 touches, 115 yards. Those two were the big bruisers for Baltimore last night. Tom Brady, 30 of 46, 285 yards, one TD. He was picked once. James White, nine carries for 38 yards, including one TD. Julian Edelman with 89 receiving yards. Mohamed Sanu with 81. Each of them had 10 receptions. Those two were balling out last night for New England offensively, but that outstanding defense could not contain Lamar Jackson, and that was the difference last night. To me, that might have been the most interesting game from Sunday. You have an unbeaten team go down against a quarterback that people criticize for not being a good enough passer. He was good enough in every aspect last night, and I tell you what, you look at Lamar Jackson and the skill set he brings to the table. He is the energizer for that Baltimore offense. He is the one that makes that offense move. 
Bill Belichick's philosophy defensively throughout his coaching career, especially since going to New England, has been your best player is not going to beat us. Last night, Baltimore's best player beat New England because Lamar Jackson was the best player on the field last night. And Lamar Jackson is showing why he deserves consideration for the MVP. I still don't think he's going to get it. I absolutely think he should be a finalist. Probably top three, four maybe with Deshaun Watson, Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers. Right now to me, Russ and Rodgers are the front runners. You've got Deshaun Watson, and then uh, that's about where I'd put Lamar Jackson. I don't think he's going to win it, but he deserves to be in the conversation, or rightfully so. In terms of fantasy points, because that's what we love, that's what we measure things by here in 2019, that's our standard, that's our benchmark. In terms of the ESPN model, Lamar Jackson put up 28 fantasy points last night. All the other quarterbacks that New England faced so far this year averaged four fantasy points when they played the Patriots. Lamar Jackson had 28. The others had four. Two of them had negative ratings. And nobody had more fantasy points as a quarterback, according to ESPN this year, before last night, against the Patriots than Baker Mayfield, who had 11. That's how good Lamar Jackson was last night. That is why he rightfully deserves to be in the MVP race. Before we hit the break, let's update our pick'em standings. I'm still on top, but my lead is only two games now. I'm 29-15. and 15. I did pick San Fran and Philadelphia. I also picked Cleveland and New England. Those were both incorrect. Ryan Stieg, 27-17. and 17. I have a two-game lead on him. He picked San Francisco, Philadelphia, and Denver, but he picked New England, so he's 3-1 and one so far this week. John Michael Hofling has raced into a tie for second place. His hot streak continues. He's now 27-17. and 17. He picked correctly. San Fran, Philly, and Denver, but he also picked Baltimore. Who does that? Who picks Baltimore to beat New England? Who thought that was going to happen? John Michael Hofling did. Tyree Smith did as well. We'll get to that in a moment. Jake Durant, 26 and 18. He picked San Fran, Philly, Cleveland, and New England. And then Tyree Smith, 25 and 19. San Fran, Philly, Cleveland. He also picked Baltimore. In case you missed that, he is a childhood friend of Lamar Jackson. They went to middle school together. So he's got a little bit of attachment for the for the Ravens. I don't blame him for making the pick that he did. It was correct. First to fifth, separated by four games. All of us picked Dallas to beat the Giants tonight on Monday Night Football, so the standings will not change in that sense. That is Pick'em as we play every week here in the Sports Pen with our friends of the show. We're hitting the halfway point, and I like where I'm sitting so far, trying to get to that 30-win benchmark this evening. I tell you what, let's take a timeout. When we come back, one of the highest-profile college football coaching jobs opened up this weekend who are some candidates you need to know we'll get to that after this check out the up's live and local sports talk show the sports pen weekday afternoons at four on espn up and on the espn up app welcome back to the sports pen on espn up tanner hoops with you glad to have you along this monday afternoon over the weekend it was announced that florida state is going a different direction with their football program they relieved Willie Taggart of his head coaching duties midway through his second year at the helm. Taggart and the Seminoles were off to a 4-5 and five start. They lost 27-10 to against Miami on Saturday. Who are some candidates that you need to know who could be on the move and head down to Tallahassee to replace Taggart and take over a once-proud, once-storied program, a dynasty really, that has won a national championship this decade? First, let me give you some background because I'm going to give you my top candidates. But first, Willie Taggart... Can we agree that he is this generation's Charlie Weiss? Willie Taggart is a head coach. He's made four stops at the Division I level. He was at Western Kentucky, and he went 16-20. and 20. He went 24-25 and 25 at South Florida, 7-5 and five at Oregon, and then 9-12 and 12 in his one and a half years at Florida State. His buyouts from those four stops, $30,180,000. Willie Taggart is getting paid $30 million plus to not coach because he won 56 games at four different schools. Meanwhile, he lost 62. 56 and 62, career record at four different schools, and he's being paid $30 million to not coach. It's not a bad gig. It's not a bad gig. Charlie Weiss made it work. Now let me give you these. This is the Power 5 coaching class of 2018. When Willie Taggart was hired, these are the other coaches that were hired by Power 5 schools that same year and how they've done, where Willie Taggart stacks up as compared to some of these schools. 
Dan Mullen has the best record of any of them right now. Dan Mullen hired by Florida a couple of years ago. He's 17-5. and five. Mario Cristobal, who took over for Taggart at Oregon, is 15-7, and seven, as is Jimbo Fisher, who was formerly Florida State's head coach before Taggart and has since moved on to Texas A&M. Herm Edwards is 12-9 and nine at Arizona State. Joe Moorhead is 12-10 and 10 at Mississippi State. Then you get to the coaches who just quite haven't cut it. Willie Taggart has the same record as Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee and Kevin Sumlin at Arizona since they all took over during the same offseason period. They all went 9-12 and 12 at their respective schools. Scott Frost at Nebraska, 8-13. and 13. Chip Kelly at UCLA, 7-14. and 14. Jonathan Smith at 6-14. and 14. That's kind of misleading because he's at Oregon State. He's probably over-exceeded expectations at Oregon State so far, which says something about their standard. And then Chad Morris, 4-17 and 17, as the head coach at Arkansas. Those are the Power 5 coaches that were hired at the same time as Willie Taggart. And Taggart coming into maybe the most storied program of any of them outside Nebraska that has not succeeded. I tell you what, Willie Taggart's track record speaks for itself. There's not a lot on his resume that you look at and say, this is the guy I want coaching my football team. This is the guy who's going to turn our program around. Willie Taggart may not be the answer at Florida State, but who is? Florida State is in turmoil, and it goes well beyond who's coaching their football program because I tell you what, their athletic office and their administration is in such disarray right now, they are going to have a hard time attracting a candidate. And let me explain why. After Jimbo Fisher left in 2017, they had a terrible time trying to find a head coach. It was tough. And eventually, A.D. Stan Wilcox, who was a good one, ended up leaving to take a job with the NCAA in 2018. Now, what athletic director, what prominent school athletic director, especially one in the ACC, a blue-chip Power Five, leaves to take a job with the NCAA? Who does that? He did it because he wanted to look for greener pastures. And if you're looking to the NCAA to give you a brighter future than being the AD of a blue-chip, blue-blood, Power 5 ACC school, that says something about where your school is headed, where your program is going. That was the first warning sign. They had an even worse time trying to replace Wilcox as AD. And eventually, they just went with an internal candidate. They promoted David Coburn, who was part of the administration's office. Not the athletic office, they took an internal candidate from the school administration office. Now, the school president is expected to step down this year. Their top booster is expected to step down this year. Kind of a shadow AD. And Coburn is tasked with finding somebody who is going to leave their current school, where they must be having success if they're a head coaching target, and come take over a failing Florida State program with no sense of direction and nothing from the top. Certainly not support, really only expectations. Because while Florida State has been an internal mess well beyond the football field, the expectations are still going to be high. And if you don't win, the boosters in that administration, as incompetent as they might be, are going to be more than happy to let that coach be the fall guy. So who would want to step into that situation? Let me give you my coaching candidates to watch for. Bet Online came out with their odds for who is going to be the next Florida State head coach. And I'll give you a few of these and tell you why I disagree with them before I give you my list. And the one at the top of this list I vehemently disagree with. According to Bet Online, Matt Campbell currently the head coach at Iowa State, is at 3-1 to one odds to be the next head coach at Florida State. That is the most of anybody. Ladies and gentlemen, that's just not going to happen. I grew up in Iowa. I've been around there plenty of times while Campbell's been there. He loves it at Iowa State. And he feels like he is building something really special there. He's had his opportunities, and he's going to have better opportunities to leave Iowa State. Matt Campbell is a guy that people have talked about for an NFL job because of the style of offense that he runs and the way that he's able to develop a culture. Davo Sweeney's kind of one of those guys. He's not an X's and O's guy, but he's more of a culture guy with good coordinators. Matt Campbell's the same way. And Davo Sweeney's not going to the NFL, 
So people look at Matt Campbell and what he does at Iowa State, and they think, maybe this is a guy we'll take a shot on. It sounds crazy. Iowa State's not exactly known for producing NFL players or coaches, but Matt Campbell is a guy who will get a shot at the NFL at some point in his career. He does not need to risk his future by taking over a very poorly operated program in Tallahassee, Florida right now, and I don't think he would anyway. He likes Iowa State. He likes where he's at. If he had the opportunity to go somewhere, the Power 5 spectrum, like an established program, somewhere he can continue to develop guys, I think he'd take that opportunity. But if not, he will have a shot at the NFL someday. Matt Campbell is not taking the Tallahassee job. So who could be? I'll give you my top candidates and why I believe that they could be on the move. And for me, one of the guys at the top of both my list and Bet Online's list is Mark Stoops, currently the head coach at Kentucky. Stoops is at 4-1 to odds, according to Bet Online. That's second most of anybody. Was formerly the defensive coordinator there. Now, he's got a losing record at Kentucky. I think he's 24-26. and But Kentucky is far from an established football program. And he's developed quality talent, especially on the defensive side of the ball. He is starting to make Kentucky more competitive. They were really pretty darn good last year. They were pretty competitive last year, weren't they? Spent most of the year in the top 25. Finished, what, 9-3? and three? Kentucky is a program that is on the rise. Unfortunately for them, they play in the SEC. It's hard to build a program, a culture in the SEC. But Stoops has done it. And his connections with Florida State make me think he will be somebody that is at least contacted for Florida State. Now, will he leave Kentucky? Well, to get out of the SEC, do what he did and build a program that didn't have a lot to work with when he entered? To do that in the ACC, maybe he would. Maybe he would at a place where he has history. Mark Stoops is a realistic choice for the Florida State head coaching job. Who else on this list? James Franklin is listed with the third best odds, according to Bet Online, at 5-1. to one. He's not leaving Penn State. Much for the same reason that Matt Campbell's not leaving Iowa State, James Franklin, even more so, is not leaving Penn State to take over the Florida State job. He took a program that was in shambles. It was in disarray. A major scandal. And he takes over that program and builds them into a national contender again. Now, that's exactly the kind of guy Florida State wants because they are a program in shambles, not for the same reason as Penn State, but they are in shambles and need somebody who's going to build that culture back up. James Franklin could be that guy. I think he is that guy, and he's proven it with what he's done at Penn State. But he's not leaving for Florida State. It's just not going to happen. If that's what is truly the most important criteria for the Seminoles when they're looking at who's going to be their next head coach, the guy that needs to be at the forefront of their list, who they actually could swing to Florida State, the guy that I believe should be at the top of their list, is Matt Rule at Baylor. Matt Rule has a proven track record of coming in to a kitchen with an empty cupboard and suddenly they're stocked. He turned Temple into a top 25 team. They hosted college game day during his tenure. Eventually, he left for Baylor. Took over a team that was 1-11. Coming off the Art Bryles scandal. And now the Golden Bears are undefeated. Ranked 12th in the country. The Bears, I don't think they're going to be there when it's all said and done. But New Year's Six Bowl? They're looking like it. They're looking like it. And Matt Rule is responsible for building that program from the ground up. Could he do the same thing at Florida State? For me, that one's more realistic than James Franklin. And that is the guy that you need to be targeting if you're Florida State. Matt Rule from Baylor needs to be at the top of Florida State's wish list. Urban Meyer also listed with pretty good odds here at 6-1. to one. Just not going to happen. Especially after last week when David Coburn, the current AD, said that if Coach Willie Taggart was hit by a bus the following day, that if for some reason he wasn't going to be coaching Florida State anymore, which is now the reality, that Urban Meyer still would not be the head coach at Florida State. And if I'm Urban Meyer, why would I want that job? Why would you want it? It's an absolute mess administratively. Urban Meyer is going to have better opportunities than Florida State. P.J. Fleck listed at 6-1 to odds, same as Urban Meyer. Fleck has the Gophers 8-0, ranked 13th in the country, Took over a program that wasn't very good. And slowly, they started getting better. They went 5-7, and seven, then 7-6. Seven and six. Now they're 8-0. And, oh. 
And if Minnesota doesn't lock down P.J. Fleck for the long term this year, they already gave him two extensions. P.J. Fleck might take the opportunity to go from Minnesota to Florida State. I don't think that's the right move, but is it possible? Absolutely it is. Here's another really interesting one. How about Bob Stoops? Another Stoops brother. He's got connections to Florida State. Right now he's a head coach of the Dallas Renegades. But do you think that he'd take the opportunity to leave the XFL and get back to college, especially take over a program like that? A guy who's won a national championship, one of the greatest coaches of all time? Yeah, maybe it's in the back of your mind because you weigh the options. I know it's not a great college job right now, but XFL or Division I Power Five college football? It could be Bob Stoops who ends up getting the nod. I don't think it's that unrealistic, but I don't think it's totally realistic either. A few of their names on here is listed by Bet Online. Josh Heupel, 7-1 odds. You have Dino Babers on here at Syracuse. And Jimbo Fisher, just for the heck of it, is on here at 15-1 to 1 odds. Bobby Bowden's actually on at 50-1 to 1 odds, which I thought was hilarious. And Jim Harbaugh, 20-1 to 1 odds. But Jim's coming back to Michigan next year. We all know that. I'm just saying what we all know. I tell you what, Florida State is going to have a hard time filling that vacant head coaching spot because as storied of a program as it is, again, one that's won a national title within this decade, there's not a lot there right now. And there's not a lot attractive about that job. Not a lot of stability, whether it's in the athletic office or in the administration. And while you're not going to get Matt Campbell, you're not going to get James Franklin, you shouldn't get P.J. Fleck, you're not going to get Urban Meyer. The guys who could go into that job and succeed, you would think maybe Matt Rule, because he's proved it at Baylor, at Temple, Bob Stoops, Mark Stoops, either or. Those are the kind of guys that you need to be looking at if you're Florida State. Those guys need to be at the top of your wish list. Let's take another time out. When we come back, what else do we learn from this weekend? Because we got a lot to digest. All that and more coming up next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along this Monday afternoon. Here's your Sports Center update. World Series champion Steven Strasburg has opted out of his contract with the Washington Nationals and will become a free agent. The Nats are interested in re-signing the 31-year-old Strasburg to a new deal. During Friday night's Lakers-Mavericks game, LeBron James became the oldest player in NBA history to finish a game with at least 30 points, 15 assists, and 10 rebounds, while Luka Doncic did the same thing, becoming the youngest player to ever accomplish the feat. How about that? I'll repeat that. The Lakers played the Mavericks on Friday. LeBron James became the oldest player in NBA history to finish the game with at least 30 points, 15 assists, and 10 rebounds. Luka Doncic did the same thing but became the youngest player to ever accomplish the feat. They did it in the same game. And finally, today is National Chicken Lady Day. We honored Dr. Tina Dupree, who became known as the Chicken Lady after 12 years as the Director of Community Relations and Training for the second largest chicken restaurant in the world, where she led several community outreach and educational effort programs. It's also National Candy Day, so do it that what you will. That is your Sports Center update. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad that you're along this Monday afternoon. I got some football I want to touch on. I got a little bit of baseball, a little bit of hockey as well. First, though, I want to go back briefly to last segment because there's something I neglected to touch on in regards to the vacant Florida State football job. Lane Kiffin, currently the head coach of Florida Atlantic, says he's interested in it. I don't know that Florida State's interested in him, nor should they be. Lane Kiffin ain't it, all right? Let's just put all rumors about Lane Kiffin being the right guy for that job out of the equation. That being said, let's get to baseball. The Gold Glove Award winners were announced this weekend. Run through those quick. The American League, where Mike Leake got the award as a pitcher. Played part of the year with the Diamondbacks, part of it with the Mariners, but still eligible to win it in the American League. That's his first. He won it over Jose Barrios and Lucas Giolito. American League catcher Roberto Perez won his first. Runner-ups Danny Jansen and Christian Vasquez. First base, it was Matt Olson winning it for the second time in his career. Runner-ups Yuli Guriel and Justin Smoke. Second base, Yomer Sanchez won his first. He led all American League second basemen in out-of-zone defensive stops. 
by a wide margin too, 37 more than the next closest. The runner-ups, Jose Altuve and DJ LeMayhew. The shortstop position, that went to Francisco Lindor, his second of his career. Marcus Simeon and Andrelton Simmons were the runner-ups. I tell you what, a few years ago, Marcus Simeon had the worst fielding percentage for any starting shortstop in Major League Baseball, and suddenly he's one of the best defensive players in baseball. Third base, another Oakland athletic, Matt Chapman. That's his second of his career. Alex Bregman and David Fletcher, the runner-ups. The outfield, Alex Gordon in left field. He got it for the seventh time. Andrew Benintendi and Robbie Grossman, the runner-ups. Kevin Kiermeyer won it for the third time in center field. Runner-ups, Mike Trout and Jackie Bradley Jr. And then in right field, Mookie Betts, the runner-ups being Cole Calhoun and Josh Reddick. Over in the National League, Zach Grinke. Played part of the year with the Astros, part of it with the Diamondbacks. He won his sixth gold glove. And again, he finished the year in the American League. Just like the American League winner finished in the National League. But it counts all the same. The other finalists were Jack Flaherty and Aaron Nola. The catcher went to JT Realmuto. His first runner-ups, Austin Hedges and Yadi Molina. Anthony Rizzo got his second, representing the Cubs at first base. Paul Goldschmidt and Christian Walker were the two runner-ups. Second base, it was Colton Wong getting his first. Ozzie Albies and Adam Frazier were the runner-ups. Shortstop was Nick Ahmed of Arizona. It was his first of his career. Runner-ups, Trevor Story and Paul DeYoung. Third base, Nolan Arenado, his seventh gold glove. Anthony Rendon and Josh Donaldson, the runner-ups. Left field, David Peralta won his first. The runner-ups, Hunter Renfro and Juan Soto. Center field, Low Kane, Lorenzo Kane wins the first of his career, which is amazing to believe. As fast as he is, his arm needs a little work. But he was excellent defensively this year. He wins his first gold glove over Harrison Bader and Victor Robles. Right field, Cody Bellinger won his first. The other finalists were Bryce Harper and Jason Hayward. Those are the MLB gold glove winners as announced this weekend. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, before I tell you a story about a conversation I had regarding the Red Wings earlier today, I want to get to this because things keep getting worse for the Cleveland Browns. Yesterday, following their five-point loss to the Broncos 24-19, they dropped to 2-6 and six after having Super Bowl aspirations. Jermaine Whitehead, a safety for the team, went on a Twitter tirade 15 minutes after the final horn sounded, after the clock hit all zeros. He went to the locker room and tweeted a series of insensitive tweets. Four tweets that included racism and threatened violence. He replied to some critics on Twitter. The first tweet, I'm looking at the screenshot now, is he told a fan, Don't get shot at, little blank. Can you whoop my blank? F football. Let me know when you need the address. A different tweet, Whitehead actually gives him the address of where he can be found challenging a fan to a fight and said, any effing day of the week, and then a racial epithet. He told another fan, I'ma kill you, blank, that's on blood. And in his final tweet, he said, come get it in blood, B, made blank little boy. I'm out there with a broke hand, don't get smoked blank, blank, blank. And Jermaine Whitehead went on a Twitter tirade that eventually resulted in his Twitter account being suspended. The Browns issued a statement regarding Whitehead's statements, and he was released from the team earlier today. Things go from bad to worse for Cleveland because Baker doesn't look like an NFL quarterback anymore. Odell Beckham Jr., the guy who was obsessed with his ex, obsessed with taking shots at the New York Giants more than he seemed to care about being in Cleveland, it's only a matter of time till he starts taking shots at his quarterback, just like he did in New York. You know, Baker was willing to be Odell's best friend during the offseason, stand by him, stand up for him when he took those shots at the Giants. Now what's Baker going to do? How's he going to respond when the shots are directed at him? Because Baker, we know, doesn't like to be criticized, doesn't like someone to stand up to him and challenge him. You have got way too many hotheads and personalities in that locker room. Odell Beckham Jr. and Jarvis Landry were told by NFL officials to change their cleats at halftime or not play in the second half. This comes after Odell tried to make a statement by wearing expensive wristwatches on the field the first couple of weeks of the season, didn't care if he got fined. You have too many hotheads in this locker room for Freddie Kitchens to control. And you're about to get Kareem Hunt on your team. 
Freddie Kitchens is in over his head. I'm not saying that he's a bad NFL coach, but he is not ready to be an NFL coach. He was not ready to make the jump from linebacker coach to offensive coordinator to head coach in less than six months. That's exactly what he did, and he's not ready. He's just not ready. He might be smart about what he does, and he certainly was last year when he worked with Baker Mayfield, but now that he is the one running the show, he's showing he can't handle it. And here's the thing. The Browns were absolutely right to make Freddie Kitchens the head coach. That was the right move at the time. At the time, he was clearly the best guy you could have gotten for the job. Because Mike McCarthy wanted to go to the Jets. Greg Williams was not the reason that the Browns were successful when he took over as interim head coach. It was not because the defense improved. It was because the offense improved. And Baker went to bat for Freddie Kitchens during the offseason and said, this is my guy. You've got to keep me happy. You finally have a quarterback. Well, they thought they did. So you got to hire this guy as head coach because this is my guy. The offensive production under Freddie Kitchens, it skyrocketed for Baker as compared to Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley. Everything said, hire Freddie Kitchens. That's the right decision. Everything was out there that said it. But now, Freddie Kitchens' inexperience is catching up to him. Now it's not just about him developing Baker Mayfield. Now it's about him being responsible for 53 guys rather than a group of quarterbacks focusing on one man. Freddie Kitchens just is not ready. He's officially on the hot seat. I don't know that he gets fired after this season because the Browns have gone through that revolving door of head coaches time and time again. But you're going to get some good coaches out on the market this year. Dan Quinn will probably be out of a job in Atlanta. Mike Tomlin could be out of a job in Pittsburgh. And who knows what happens with Lincoln Riley. Maybe you can pair Lincoln up with Baker Mayfield again. Maybe that's the move. And if that's the case, might as well cut ties with Freddie right now. Make it known. You want to reunite Lincoln Riley and Baker Mayfield. But if I'm Lincoln Riley, do I want that job? I don't. I don't. I don't want to deal with the culture that the Browns have right now. I don't want to deal with what's going on in that locker room. Because this is far from over. This is far from over. The Browns have one of the easiest remaining schedules in the NFL. But Denver this weekend was a part of that, and they still lost. So the Browns will need to win six of their final eight just to finish 500. Go eight and eight. Probably won't make the playoffs. Far cry from the expectations they had coming into this season. I tell you what, I like Freddie Kitchens, but he's not ready to be an NFL head coach. I do think he's a smart coach when he focuses on what he's best at, which is offensive strategy, developing quarterbacks, not being responsible for an entire locker room. Because you put a first-year head coach in a locker room with that many personalities, and you are shaking up a warm bottle of soda shaking up a warm bottle of Mountain Dew that you've left in the car all day long. And I tell you what, I was in favor of hiring Freddie Kitchens this offseason. I thought with the work that he did with Baker Mayfield, that he was the right guy for the job. He earned it. They certainly weren't winning because of Greg Williams. They were winning because the offense was better, and Freddie Kitchens was the reason the offense was better. But then you went out and got Odell Beckham Jr. You realized that Kareem Hunt would be in the fold, and you just had too many personalities too many hotheads in that locker room and that eventually was the Browns downfall that and the inability to be able to manage it from the top the lack of experience within the management to handle it I tell you what ladies and gentlemen before we get to the break I want to tell you about a conversation I had earlier today with my barber we were talking hockey I was in there getting my hair cut and we're talking about the Red Wings, and you know, Pete's a big Red Wings guy. It's my barber. So we're talking about the Red Wings, and we're talking about the personnel on this group right now. You know, I've been critical of the netminders that Detroit has had over the last few years because I really just don't think very much of Peter Morazic as an NHL goalie. Some days he looks pretty good. Other days, I just I don't see it like others seem to. Jimmy Howard is one of those guys that if you put a really good group in front of him, he'll be serviceable. He won't lose you a game. He won't make the big save, but he's not going to lose you a game. 
But you look at their four forward lines, and you look at that group and you wonder, if you, let's say this is like the nuclear option, you had to start selling these guys because you know the season is in such disarray that you are going to test the trade market. So you start selling a few of your guys. Bertuzzi, Manta. For now, let's put off speculating what could you get for them. But let's think about where would these guys play? A guy like Helm. What kind of line would he play on if he went over to Toronto right now? If Bertuzzi was traded to Washington, would he be a top two line guy there? You look at the Red Wings, and their organization does an excellent job of building up mid-level talent. From Grand Rapids, they bring up grinder-type guys. But once you get a team full of third, fourth-line guys, you're going to go through the growing pains that the Red Wings are right now. And this is what we were talking about. We're excited to see what Steve Eiserman is like as a general manager this year. Because Ken Holland wasn't hitting the trade block like he used to almost 20 years ago now when the Red Wings won that cup in 2 And you remember Holland, the moves he was making when that happened. Went out and got Dominic Hasek, Brett Hull, Luke Robitaille were part of that team. You infuse them into a lineup that already includes Iserman, Brandon Shanahan, Nicholas Lindstrom, Pavel Datsuk. I think that might have been his rookie year. Don't forget Fedorov, Chelios. And you look at that group that they had. They were so deep. And that's something the Red Wings haven't been here in these last few years where they've been missing out of the playoffs. This was a team whose grinder line consisted of Kirk Maltby, Darren McCarty, Chris Draper and company. Chris Draper had 30 points that season in the 2002 season where the Red Wings won the cup and the President's Trophy. And he was on your fourth line. That's how deep the Red Wings were. Now you take guys from that team, Chris Draper. Where do you think that he would play on the average team back in 2002? Whoever's about the midway point in the standings. Would he be a second, third line guy? He probably would. For a team that was just right on the playoff bubble. He'd probably be a second or third line guy. But he was a fourth liner for that Red Wing team. Because of how deep they were. Now it's the opposite. Now you've got maybe two first line players anywhere else. Dylan Larkin probably could play first line on a contending team. Maybe Monta could if he keeps scoring this way. Could anybody else? Are there any other legit first-liners on this Red Wing team that you could stick them into a contending team's first line and they would beat the incumbent out for a spot? I'm not sure that there are beyond Larkin or beyond Manta. I'm not sure how many second-liners there are. Because the Red Wings have problems scoring the puck. They've got some good speed. They don't have a lot of guys who can score. They don't have a lot of guys with great handwork. What are they going to do when they're in their 30s and that speed is gone and they're still having trouble scoring? This is what I'm more interested in this year, is how Steve Eiserman is going to build up this roster. I don't think the Red Wings are going to compete. They're off to a 4-10-1 start. I think we all kind of accepted that. But I want to see how Eiserman builds this team. Because right now you've got maybe two first-liners on a contending team, two guys that would be worthy of being on a top line for a contender. And then maybe a few second-line guys and then a lot of three, four-line guys. I'm more interested to see how Iserman digs out of the hole that Ken Holland and management put the Red Wings into these last few years. To me, that's what I'm most interested in as far as this Red Wing season goes. Taking on Nashville tonight, 7.30 puck drop. That very well could teach us something with a defensive unit that the Preds are bringing to the table. I tell you what, all part of a conversation I had with my barber Pete. Shout out to him for the haircut and for the conversation. Give me some good fodder to use here on ESPN-UP. Let's take a time out. When we come back, let's end the day playing over-under with the college football ranked games for this weekend. Next on ESPN-UP. 
Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. If you missed any of today's show, get caught up on demand. Get our free mobile app from the Apple App Store or Google Play or look up ESPNUP.com and get the on-demand there. Tanner Hoops with you as we wind down this Monday afternoon and we end Monday's show the way we always do during the fall, during football season, and that is playing over-under with the Lions via Bet Online for the top 25 games in college football this weekend. We start with kind of a gimme. We've got Ohio State, maybe the best team in the country, at home taking on Maryland, who was dominated by Michigan this weekend. They got out to that hot start. You thought maybe Mike Loxley is that next elite head coach, the guy who can go somewhere and turn around a flailing program. And it doesn't look like it anymore. Ohio State is favored to win by 43 this weekend against the Terps. I'll go with the over on that. As good as Ohio State's been and as bad as Maryland has looked, there's no reason that I shouldn't think that's what's going to happen this weekend. Baylor on the road. They are two-point favorites. They take on TCU. I'm going with the over on it. I think the Bears continue their hot streak. Matt Rule's got them going in the right direction. I think they go on the road to Fort Worth and they get the win and cover the two-point spread. Wisconsin at home, they take on Iowa. And the Badgers favored by 10. In a battle of top 20 teams, I'll go with the over on it because of Jonathan Taylor and that running attack. Iowa's linebacking core, just it's not bad. It isn't as good as it's been in years past. But I am excited for that battle with A.J. Epinesa up on the defensive line going up against Jonathan Taylor. That being said, if this was in Kinnick, I would take the under. I might even take Iowa with the upset. But since it's in Madison, Camp Randall, we're going with Wisconsin to cover the 10-point spread. You've got Texas at home, five-point favorites against Kansas State. K-State coming off that upset win over Oklahoma last week. Despite that, I'm going to go with the over on it. Sam Ellinger, that Texas squad... They're better than they've shown this year. I think that their best football is yet to be played. I don't think we've seen the best version of this year's Texas team yet. It's only a matter of time. This weekend feels right. I'm going to go with the Texas Longhorns to cover that five-point spread against K-State. Here's going to be a fun one. Penn State on the road taking on Minnesota. The Nittany Lions, seven-point favorites. I'm going with the over on it. Minnesota's look shaky. Penn State I thought was going to look shaky at some point. I don't. I don't think so this week, and I think that they're going to slightly cover that seven-point spread, go on the road, and beat the Gophers in TCF Bank Stadium, although I, I, I do want the Gophers to win this one. Got a little bit of a bias to the Gophers, a little partiality. I spent a lot of time on that campus. I'll go with the Gophers that I want them to pull the upset. I just don't think they will. You have Florida, 25-point favorites at home against Vanderbilt. Yeah, I'll, I'll take the over on it. Why not? Now, Vanderbilt is one of those teams where I think they have the right coach there, but they don't have a lot outside of Derek Mason. Florida at home, they're coming off a close loss to Georgia. I've been hard on Florida because I don't think that they're for real, but they're not a bad team. They really aren't. I just don't think they're a legit college football playoff contender. Top 15, absolutely. And a top 15 should beat Vanderbilt by 25 or more on their home field. How about SMU trying to rebound from a loss to Memphis? They are 25-point favorites at home with East Carolina. I'm booking that, too. I'll take the over on it. I like what Sonny Dykes is doing over there, and I think they rebound after that loss. This is going to be the one to watch. LSU at Alabama. The Rolling Tide, six-point favorites in Tuscaloosa. Will the Crimson Tide reclaim the top spot in the land? Number one against number two, Tide favored by six. I will take the over. I think they'll slightly cover. It's going to be a close one. Maybe 9, 10 points, something like that. But they're in Tuscaloosa. I think Bama is better than LSU anyway. Maybe not up to this point. LSU's got a better resume than Bama. They deserve to be ranked where they are. But I think overall, Alabama's better than LSU. I think we'll see that this weekend. But it won't be the disappointment that we're used to when LSU comes in having a good season. They play Alabama and then get blown out. It won't be one of those years. I think it's going to be a fun game, but I think Bama wins this one by about 9 or 10. How about Cincinnati? 36-point favorites. They are at home against UConn. 
I'll take the over on it. Luke Fickle, well, he may not be in Cincinnati next year. He might be a popular head coaching candidate. UConn is just flailing right now. Everything's going right for Cincy right now. It could not be further from the truth for UConn. I'm going to go with Cincy to cover the 36-point spread at home. Wake Forest, four-point favorites at Virginia Tech. I'm going to go with the over on this one. Wake Forest feels slighted. Virginia Tech, I know that they had a really good effort this weekend at Notre Dame. Almost came away with that upset. But there hasn't been a lot about Vitek that really surprises me. They had an outstanding defensive effort at Notre Dame. But if their defense isn't able to play like that on a more consistent basis... I don't know what to expect from the Hokies. I do know that Wake Forest has overperformed this year. I think they're going to go on the road and they're going to win by more than four points. Clemson, 32-point favorites. They go on the road and take on NC State. I'm going to I'm gonna go out of a limb here. I'm going to say it's not going to be a 32-point win. It'll be a win, but I'm taking the under on it. Clemson, did you see what happened this weekend with their Twitter account? Tweeting about haters, how they haven't played anybody with a record below 500. Now, they forgot to mention that Georgia Tech was a team that they played in their season opener, and they're one of the worst teams in college football. Clemson is starting to feel a little insecure. They hear some of the talking about their schedule, their strength of schedule. And Clemson is starting to feel the heat a little bit, according to their Twitter account this weekend. And NC State is just a weird place to play. It's not necessarily tough, but the atmosphere is weird. They're never really a contender. But they make you earn a win. It's almost like the ACC's Kinnick. That being said, I don't know what to expect from Clemson this weekend. I'm going to say there's enough intangibles here. There's enough variables. I'd be comfortable taking the under on Clemson as 32-point favorites this weekend in Raleigh. We got a few more on here. We've got Notre Dame going on the road, taking on Duke, fighting Irish favored by seven. Now, they haven't looked good these last couple of weeks. They had no business winning against Michigan. They had no business winning this weekend against Va Tech. They somehow did. I tell you what, the seven point spread seems about right. I'll take slightly the under. I'm going to go slightly with the under on this one. David Cutcliffe has always been tough, especially when you're playing Notre Dame. Yeah, I'm going to go with the under, I think, on this one. I think the Irish win, but it's not going to be a pretty win. It's going to be another ugly week for Notre Dame. Oklahoma at home, 14-point favorites. They take on Iowa State. That game can be heard here in ESPN-UP, by the way. And the Sooners are favored by two touchdowns. You know, I know the history between these two teams. Iowa State beat Baker Mayfield and the Sooners in Norman a couple of years ago. Oklahoma coming off that loss to K-State, a loss that they had no business being a part of. It kind of wants me to say that ISU could make this a really difficult game. That being said, I just don't believe it. I just don't believe it's going to happen. The numbers, the history, that's telling me, take the under. I'm not going to take the upset. Maybe I take the under. I'm not going to. I'm going to say Oklahoma covers. OU by the two touchdown spread. And then Boise State 13-point favorites, they're at home, and they take on Wyoming, the fighting Josh Allens. I'm going to go with the over. I'll take Boise on the over, maybe just slightly over. Set the line at 14, 15, 16, something like that. I'd probably be okay with that. I'd probably be comfortable there. And then finally, San Diego State at home, 17-point favorites against Nevada. I think that sounds about right. I like the line there, to be honest with you. I like the line at 17 points, San Diego State to beat Nevada. That is over-under as we play here in the sports pen with the lines from the top 25 games in college football for the upcoming weekend. I've been on a cold streak lately. I don't know if I'm picking with my heart or my head too much, one or the other, not paying attention to the other. But i got to get back on track. I need another good week this week. I tell you what, that is it for us. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. A reminder that it is all available on demand if you missed any part and you want to relive Upper Michigan's happy hour here on ESPN-UP. I'm back on tomorrow, same time and place. It's my hope that you join me. We'll recap Monday Night Football Cowboys-Giants. Plus, I'll have some Northern Michigan audio for you as the Wildcat hockey team continues to climb the national rankings. Basketball just getting started. I tell you what, there's going to be a lot to dive in tomorrow. It's my hope you join me for Eastern 3 Central. Signing off from the ESPN-UP WZAM Ishpeming Marquette Studios. I'm Tanner Hoops. Thanks for listening to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Hey.